It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am thrilled that you are tuning in because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick up here in chapter 10 today and just cover probably the first few verses. As you know, all this goes in our short period of time together, much to cover and yet only a few minutes to do it in. So we'll probably be in chapter 10 here for a couple weeks at least. So again, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you've missed any of the the prior broadcasts and you would like to listen to those, uh, go to calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. Dot com And you can pick up not only listening to the prior broadcast there, but you can watch the sermon series that we're in right now. In fact, uh, at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, uh, we're going through a wonderful study, I believe. I'm, I'm quite fond of this study in the book of Matthew. I love the book of Matthew, and we've just uh, wrapped up the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, so I know you'll be blessed uh, just from from all of that study, and, and we try to spend a great deal of time as we exposit the text, go verse by verse through God's holy word uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if, if you're looking for a fellowship to get connected with, to go deeper into the word of God with, and, and even just to have friends and family you can look forward to seeing on the weekends, please check us out. Again, Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley in the south end of Colorado Springs. Website is calvaryfountain.com. So let's get into this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But before I do, let me just uh, get your mind uh, churning on this for a moment. You know, the, the former New York Yankees catcher, Yogi Berra, once said, it ain't over till it's over. Now, now Yogi is no theologian, but he unknowingly expressed one of the greatest principles in the Christian life. It matters little to have the lead at the beginning. What matters is how you finish. And victory is won at the finish line, not at the starting block. So the Christian life is not this 100-yard dash that we often think that it is. It's, a, it's really a marathon, and it requires endurance and a lifetime commitment to keep running with, with the intent of finishing strong. So that cliche, it ain't over till it's over, also serves to remind you and me that even if we have fallen far behind in the Christian race, there, there's still time to finish well. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 13, The Apostle Paul is going to warn us about the dreadful and severe consequences of sin. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound encouraging. It it is. It's also going to challenge us to avoid sin and persevere in our Christian lives. So here we wrapped up 1 Corinthians 9, and we are in verses 24 to 27. And Paul shared that he strived to keep himself in check because he didn't want to end up disqualified, being disqualified even from the prize of God's approval. Now, this wasn't about salvation. This is about the rewards for faithful service. We, we've covered that to great deal, talking about the even the crowns that are bestowed upon the faithful servants of Almighty God. So again, this is not a salvation issue here. It can often just reflect, are we complacent in our walk with the Lord, or are we driven to do as he has commanded us to do, to be a bondservant to the Most High? Are we 
are we brokenhearted about the fact that there are those around us who do not know Jesus Christ? And, and if they were to die today, they wouldn't be with him. That, that should convict us greatly, motivating us to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs to see it. So Paul gives us a major history lesson with the express purpose of getting us to learn from the past. Someone has said, if history teaches us anything, it's that history teaches us nothing. In other words, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. Woodrow Wilson once said, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it's trying to do. So in these 13 verses, we're going to hear, It ain't over till it's over. And two spiritual realities will reinforce this idea. So the first one is that all of God's people experience great spiritual privileges. Now, we're going to cover that here in the first five verses. So let's look at this, because Paul is going to tell the Corinthians that they've been blessed with the same spiritual blessings as Old Testament Israel had. So now remember, this is a continuation of the instruction that Paul began in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 regarding self-sacrifice for a greater cause, even foregoing personal freedoms to see people saved. So the Corinthian church asked about these things, about food that was sacrificed to idols, and he started responding to that, and it took him through all of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and and then now here we are in this continued vein of thought here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's continuing this exhortation, and you think I'm long-winded. So remember, this is the same Paul who preached until midnight in Acts chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. Uh, Poor Eutychus falls asleep and then falls out of the window and dies. And Paul goes down, throws himself on him, and the young man is healed. And Paul goes back upstairs and keeps preaching until daybreak. So if you ask this man a question, you're going to get chapters in reply. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That last part gives us a better perspective as to why the Lord was so angry with Moses for striking the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 to 11, not only was Moses disobedient, but the rock was a demonstration, if you will, of this life-giving water from Jesus Christ that Isaiah 44, 3, and even Jesus will speak of in John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. Uh, This was an illustration of him. That rock was Christ. So these four verses clarify that the Israelites that left Egypt had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years had been saved as they were under the blessing and through the baptism, even through the waters of the Red Sea there. They had observed Passover, which was an act of faith. They had come out of Egypt, and which was really a picture of salvation. And thus the saved status of the Exodus generation is also seen in the use of the word all, which is used five times in these four verses. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. So this is not an issue about their salvation. Rather, this is about how they finished 
in their service before God. And God cares about the journey, not just the destination. So like Israel in the Old Testament, we too have received many spiritual privileges. In the same way that Israel was under the cloud, we've experienced God's protection and guidance. So in the same way that Israel passed through the sea, we have passed from death to life, according to John 5, 24. So in the same way that Israel was baptized into Moses, we've been baptized into Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that we'll get to here in a bit. But in the same way that Israel ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, we celebrate the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we'll get to that in verses 17 to 34. And we live not on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, according to Matthew 4, 4. So in the same way that Israel was followed by Christ, Christ follows us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Never will I leave you nor forsake you. So can you honestly say that you're awed by the fact that God saved you? Do you ponder and even wonder that out of all the people in the history of the world, God chose you to save you, out of his own initiative to save you, to draw you to the Son, that you would know the Son, that you would be set free, that you'd be saved, and ultimately, in so doing, redeemed by his blood, atoned for, that he was the propitiation of your sins. I mean, all of this is just mind-boggling, really, that God saw you even before the foundation of the world. Go back to last week's message, if you will, where we talked about the chosen people, and we need to be reminded of that from time to time. So after unloading the spiritual privileges of God's people, Paul then transitions into the startling contrast. So in spite of Israel's redeemed state and all of the blessings that were bestowed upon them, let's read verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. How, how many were blessed? All of them. How many with whom God was not pleased? Most of them. So the phrase, not well pleased, this is the same root word as disqualified. Okay, this is a serious thing. So it's estimated that with over 2 million people that came out of Egypt, yet only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter the promised land with the children who had grown up in the wilderness, those 19 years of age or younger, at the time of the departure from Egypt, were given the promised land. You go to Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 to 38. And a side note on that, Joshua was 80 and Caleb 85, according to Joshua 14. And the rest of Israel was no older than 59 years of age when they entered the promised land. So the rest were laid low. That means they were six feet under, if you will. So literally their carcasses were scattered across the wilderness. And these individuals were tragically disqualified by death. They, they did not go back to Egypt and get unredeemed. Rather, the blood of the lamb which had taken them out of Egypt was irreversible. They did not lose what they had, but they lost the reward that God wanted to give them. So the best example of this is Moses. Obviously, Moses was saved, yet on account of unbelief, i.e. disobedience, from Numbers chapter 20, verse 12 and Jude 5, he did not finish the journey well. If this can happen to Moses, it can happen to you and me. So like the others, he remains, or his body, if you will, remains buried in the wilderness now near Mount Nebo, or in the base of Mount Nebo, the valley there in the land of Moab, according to Deuteronomy 34, 1-12, which is the nation of Jordan today overlooking 
the land of Israel. So we must humble ourselves and take God's warnings very seriously. But remember, it ain't over till it's over. So while all of God's people experience great spiritual privilege, we will now learn further that many of God's people experience great spiritual failure. Okay, this is where it gets convicting here. There's a warning given to us collectively. Paul is going to summarize five stories from the 40 years of wilderness, the wandering that show a pattern of disqualification, God's displeasure and not finishing strong. And we stand accountable just as Israel did. So here we are, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, if we skip ahead five verses real quick, let's look at verse 11 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon which the ends of the age have come. So uh, Paul wants us to see ourselves here because there's a danger that we might too, we might also, if you will, fall into the sin like Israel and be disqualified from our rewards. Okay, so here, he, before we look at the four sins, it's important to note that the source of all four of these sins, craving evil things. That's a source here. So the craving of evil things in verse 6b was an episode that took place about a year after the Exodus in Numbers chapter 11. Israel had been given the law, they had built the tabernacle, and they had begun to travel as God had directed them. Do you know what the evil things were that they craved? The food of Egypt. They were sick and tired of the manna, and they wanted to go back to Egypt where there were cucumbers and garlic and onions. It's a bit amusing when you read what happens to Israel over this moaning and groaning. Let me just take you there for a moment. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 18 to 20, it says, Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? So they were ungrateful to God for his provision, and ultimately they weren't just complaining about the food. They wanted to go back to the lifestyle, the luxuries of Egypt, even though they were slaves to it. Now we may laugh at that for a moment, but how often are we guilty of craving the things we become enslaved to? We crave that new car, we crave the new, larger, more beautiful home, the new wardrobe, all the creature comforts of plenty, no matter the cost. Now, you know, we have, uh, there's a gentleman in our church, a uh, great guy, in fact, he's been on the radio broadcast before, and uh, his name's Wade Wilson, and he posted a picture on Facebook not long ago of three individuals standing over a homeless man. Uh, there are captions that read under each one of these well-dressed men. Number one, it says, student loan, $25,000 in debt. Then you have Kanye West, who at the time was reporting that he was $53 million in debt. And then it said, uh, the ne next gentleman, the third gentleman, said credit card, $563 in debt. And then under the homeless man, it reads, has $7. Okay, so although the others looked wealthy, 
the true wealth was with the one who wasn't a slave to the culture or to its debt. I find great irony in that particular meme. So in light of eternity, these cravings are on par with cucumbers, garlic, and onions. I mean, seriously, in eternity, what difference will it make what kind of car you drove or how large your house was? What difference will it make how successful you were in your secular job? And who will ask you about all the material possessions that you provided for your children? Will you even care about those things? The answer is no. So Paul wants us to know that craving evil things can keep us from finishing well. So if you look at these uh, four sins that Paul mentions here, verses 7 to 10, let's look at these. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, And do not become idolaters, as were some of you. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the idolater, idolatry, if you will, that Paul's referring to here took place during the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. You probably remember that story well from Exodus chapter 32, that while Moses spent 40 days on the mountain, the people became fearful and restless, and they asked Aaron to create an alternative god for them. So in great weakness, Aaron gave in and created the golden calf. And we can look at that from Exodus 32, 46. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, and brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. So uh, there's a similarity here that Paul's referring to. The Corinthians were guilty of idolatry, uh, though their temple, though they were giving into the temple feasts, and yet they had idolatry in their midst. So, so we'll discuss more of that as we get into uh, uh, chapter 11, especially. For, so for you and me, idolatry is, is putting anything or anyone in God's rightful place in our lives. I mean, anything can become an idol, really. It, it, we can even create religious idols because we are fearful of intimacy and personal accountability with the living God of the universe. So the, the busier we stay in Christian activity, the less we have to deal with ourselves before God. So Christian busyness is not a pass for unconfessed sin and lack of repentance. So success can be an idol. Relationships can be an idol. A concern for self-image can be idolatrous, because we don't believe that God himself is enough. And Paul wants us to know that idolatry can keep us from finishing well. And the next is immorality. He talks about this in verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. The sexual immorality of God's people continued through their wilderness wanderings. And, and later in their progress through the desert, the, the Israelites suddenly they, they began practicing this immorality when they participated in the Moabites' feasts. And you can go to Numbers 25, 1-9 on that. In fact, it says that in Numbers 25, 1-3, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So we're told in Numbers 25, 4-9, that some of the offenders were hung, and the rest were slain, 24,000 in total. 
And you say, wait a minute, is that the same event that Paul's referencing then? And Paul said 23,000, and Numbers 25 says 24,000. Well, Paul's referencing only those who fell by way of the sword to end the plague and appease the anger of the Lord, which was 23,000. That means a thousand of them were hung prior to that slaughter. So for all the Bible students out there, it's always fun to clear up any debates through this discussion and and make sure we're all on the same page, that there are no uh, discrepancies within the Bible. So like the Israelites, the Corinthians were also guilty of sexual immorality. In fact, one of the members was having an affair with his stepmother. We covered that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 2, and others had been commanded to flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. So the Corinthian church was not the only people group to struggle with these things, but certainly they, they were struggling with sexual immorality. And uh, quite frankly, we do as well in thought and in action. And we'll see that in Matthew, especially as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you see the Lord speaking to these issues that even the lusts of our thoughts of our heart has broken the law and broken God's heart as well and, and requires repentance. That if we've even looked at a woman with lust in our heart, we've committed adultery with her already. So these are serious offenses of the heart and mind where sin is produced. So, so here are some ways, let me just give you this, some ways to guard yourself against sexual immorality. Number one, stay honest with your spouse. Even though it may be difficult, tell your spouse when you're struggling with temptation. And then monitor your marriage. Invest first and foremost in your spouse above all your work and hobbies, even your children. Make your marriage strong before Almighty God. Then recognize that work can be a danger zone. Uh, Some psychologist, even one out of Baltimore, Shirley Glass, uh, she studied adultery and determined that 25% of women and 44% of men have affairs. And of those men and women that do have affairs, the majority of them have affairs with co-workers. So stay accountable. And beware of the lure of the internet. I mean, use various safeguards to keep yourself from succumbing to online sexual temptation and sin. So commit to an accountability relationship. Howard Hendricks, a a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, studied 237 instances of Christian men, most are Christian leaders, in fact, who've experienced moral failure. And he found one common factor. Not one of the 237 men had accountability with other men. So accountability is critical. Spend time in God's Word. Everyone has 96 15-minute periods of time every day, okay? 96 of those. If you're to set aside 15 minutes a day, you, you still have 95 of those left. So just one of those is all it takes to be challenged, convicted, and ultimately encouraged with truth. So pick up one of those 96 periods of 15 minutes and commit to his word. Now, if you multiply 96 times 7, if you've got seven days in a week, surely you can use a few of those 672 periods of 15 minutes in your week for a study of God's Word. If you use three 15-minute periods for a study of His Word, that still leaves you 669 15-minute periods for the rest of your week. Okay, so when we really break it down like that, it, it helps process it to say we're not really sacrificing all that much if we can just even take a few 
15-minute periods throughout the week to give to Almighty God. So Paul wants us to know that sexual immorality can keep us from finishing well. And we've seen this again and again in the Christian world. So we've got to persevere in our marriage vows. If you're single, stay pure. Wait on God to provide you with a spouse. The consequences can be severe when you take matters into your own hands. However, you wait on God. He will reward you with a greater sense of intimacy with Him. So again, I want to thank you for listening today. I hope you've been encouraged. We have so much more to cover. We just got through the first eight verses here of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And again, I want to encourage you to go back, pick up this study. If you Maybe you just tune in halfway into the broadcast and you're already challenged and convicted. Go back to calvaryfountain.com and there you can listen to the broadcast again. Share it with your friends and family. Get the word out. Inspire, encourage, motivate, and ultimately let the word convict them to walk in a way that brings honor and praise to Almighty God. And again, if you're looking to go deeper in God's word with others who have the same passion as you do, then again, check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Our website is calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 a.m and 10 a.m. on Sundays. And, of course, we have small groups that meet throughout the week. I mean, deep studies of God's Word, both men and women alike, even even together. Uh, we've got a new study uh, that's going through some of the, the slaying those giants in your life. How do you battle against anger and depression and all of these things that really we don't talk about? We, we're embarrassed to even speak of it. And we've got a new study on that starting uh, this, just in the next coming week. Uh, so, so please check us out again at calvaryfountain.com. We want you to be encouraged. God bless you, my friend. We'll see you next week.